Hi, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on today's episode, we are joined by the amazing teacher, Jane Clapp. Jane is a movement coach who talks about movement as a pathway to deepening our embodiment, resolving trauma, and sourcing more pleasure and joy through and with our bodies. We dig into what embodiment actually means, how the daily stress and anxiety of modern life cut us off from deep sources of wisdom and intelligence in our body, and how to reclaim a more joyful, pleasurable experience of living in these human bodies of ours. This episode offers a shortened version of my conversation with Jane Clapp. For the full extended version where we dig more into trauma and polyvagal theories about the nervous system and how we can use movement as part of trauma recovery, please come over to pleasuremechanics.com and sign up for our free Survivors Toolkit. And this is a good opportunity to remind all of our listeners about the Survivors Toolkit. This is a free online resource I have put together for anyone who feels impacted by sexual trauma and wants to learn how to work with that trauma to start reclaiming pleasure and discover a pathway back to sexual agency and pleasure and joy. The Survivor's Toolkit is an ongoing collaborative resource, and I am actively adding new resources to it as we gather more information and strategies and bring on teachers from a wide range of modalities and backgrounds to help us understand the complexity of trauma, how it impacts us over years and decades, and how we resolve that trauma in order to live more whole, pleasurable, enjoyable lives. How do we release trauma so that it doesn't dictate our experience in and out of the bedroom? So this conversation is one part of the Survivor's Toolkit, and there is much more there to discover and more being added all the time. I will put a link to the Survivor's Toolkit in the show notes page of this episode, and you can also find it by coming over to pleasuremechanics.com slash survivors. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash survivors. And you will find the link to enroll in the free Survivor's Toolkit. This is just one way we want to offer you resources to support your journey through sexuality and your work in creating a happy, healthy, pleasurable sex life on your own terms. All right, so here is my conversation with Jane Clapp about learning pleasure through movement. Jane Clapp, welcome to Speaking of Sex. Thanks for having me. Can you introduce yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, I, um, I work one-on-one with people and I also have an educational program where I, I harness kind of the intelligence of the body through movement and trauma-informed mindfulness to help people come in closer contact with their unique resilience and potentially um, wake up some some feelings of vitality, um, pleasure and joy, and deeper relationship 
with people through um, through movement and through our bodies and and uh, yeah, it's it's really beautiful work. And I work with a lot of psychotherapists and body workers and movement practitioners to help them deepen their work and their ability to be present and hold space for people who are going through some pretty pretty big stuff. And for listeners, if that sentence felt like a lot of words, uh, we can break <laughs> these concepts down. We're really going to try to talk about, because we have this sense of embodied pleasure, but I love um, your work connecting movement to pleasure. And I noticed you use the word movement and not exercise, and I wish I had gotten that translation much earlier in life. So for uh, many people, exercise feels like a punishment or at best a chore. How do you think about movement versus exercise? Um, movement to me um, can mean so many different things. And when I think of exercise, it's tied to sort of a puritanical work ethic that the harder you work, the more benefit you will derive. Um, it's also tied to sort of neoliberalism and how we look at um, our bodies and, you know, work in outcome, then it, as long as we work really hard, then things will be good in our lives um, or in our bodies. And when I think about movement, um, I work with so many people who um, going and doing, say, an hour-long movement practice or going to a yoga class or going outside of their home just isn't accessible. So movement can mean so many different things to different people. It's It's sort of how can we move in our bo- move our bodies in a way that helps us be in a deeper relationship with ourselves? So I even have some clients that the only movement that's accessible might be um, drawing or taking a paintbrush across a canvas. Um, for some people, their movement um, capacities at any given point in time can be much bigger than that. So movement is just like how can we use move our bodies in ways that help us come into a deeper relationship with with our unconscious and with ourselves Mm. it strikes me that not only do you meet the bodies where they're at as you meet them but you're also not agenda driven towards this one vision of a thin strong healthy body but rather you hold a range of possibilities for people Hell no. I mean, that, that is, I don't know, I, that I have such an aversion to that. Mm-hmm. And I work with all different body shapes and sizes. And, and it's remarkable to me when people who um, decide ahead of time what's possible based on their past relationship with exercise or movement or what they think it means to be bigger bodied or less able bodied and what actually becomes possible when we take away that kind of um, agenda of where we're trying to get. I, I was a weight loss coach for a very, very long time, and um, and it just never really worked. And there was always something deeper that was driving people towards that kind of that particular appearance or goal. And um, and in the years that I've been a coach, it I, I really see that there's something louder that people are screaming for. Um, and when, when we pursue our bodies from that kind of agenda-driven perspective. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that because, so for me, I did yoga for a lot of years, and it was actually more hard than not in most cases. What opened up for me was dance. Yeah. So what are some of the different movement 
styles, different kinds of activities that are available for people with trauma as portals? Um, I always try to coach my clients towards movement activities that are, that pull them. So I always think movement for trauma recovery is a movement that helps you come back to life. Okay. So I was working with a client the other day and I got them to just blue sky it. Imagine like what kind of movement activity would you feel drawn to doing right now? And they were having a hard time going back to their former yoga practice. And I'm like, well, there's intelligence in that. Maybe your body is not saying they want, it wants to go backwards mm-hmm. and maybe relive all the trauma that you were experiencing when you first started that practice. Um, so I, I asked them to dream. And what came up was, like, completely surprising to them. It was ice skating. Mm. And I'm like, huh, that's amazing. You're up on your feet. You feel moments like you're flying. You feel free. Um, you're using balance to kind of be present. So I'm always like, what, if you could just dream, like, what lights you up inside? And um, what do you potentially feel to pull towards? That's not always possible for people who are in deep recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but planting that seed is really important to me. Um, dance, great. Dance isn't always, a, like, something that works for people. But I had a client in here yesterday who is a former dancer, and I've worked with a lot of dancers. We've been working together for so long, and she often dances in my space, and I hold space for her to move and take up space. Mm-hmm. And then the table shifted, and she got me dancing with her. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that was incredible. So um, authentic movement it can be really helpful for people as well. Um even just going outside and walking in nature, you know, what, whatever feels like it can pull you off your couch or pull you out of bed or, you know, even movement snacks, little like movement, like two, three minutes at a time. Great. Whatever it might be for you. I know people are coming back to life when they start to wiggle. So there could be music on and I'm like, do you ever wiggle? They're like, no. I'm like, hmm. I asked one client, I'm like, just put some Stevie Wonder on. Just put some Stevie on and see if you start to wiggle. And sure enough, she started wiggling. And then I got a text from her a couple week- weekends ago. She said, I thought you'd love to know that I went out dancing tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so just like the neurodiversity of how trauma affects us, the pathways out are just as diverse. Um, Thank you. Following yes. those little threads of pleasure. Like I know some people love water and so swimming or just standing in the water. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you think about the quality of embodiment? What does embodiment mean? Oh, I just posted something about this this morning because <laughs> <laughs> it's such a word that gets thrown around and I'm guilty of using it um, as well. And um, for me, it's... It, Embodiment is sort of a conscious choice and life paradigm to include our body, which also includes our brain, right? Because our brains are part of our bodies, which our life paradigm is to um, be in deeper relationship with ourselves. um, And that includes our bodies. 
how how are we in relationship with our bodies? How do we um, use our bodies as part of our communication tool in the world? And how can our bodies be a huge part of leading us to greater um, vitality, pleasure, um, awareness, and deeper and further away from from a need to conform and to really be free? Can you give us some ideas about what this process of embodiment wakes up or like what is the point of this? What is the goal or what changes when you deepen your embodiment? Oh, well, for me, I always consider, well, why are we moving? Are we moving to from a self-care perspective because we're doing something that we know is good for us? But what really, really moves people is um, coming closer to vitality feelings of joy and feelings of pleasure, sort of like, and relationship. So I feel like what becomes more possible when people um, move in ways that are um, resourcing for them, meaning it makes them feel stronger, more vital, um, they're more able to self-soothe when they feel distressed, just makes relationship with other people so much more possible as well in safe ways. So, so when people, um, have more access to, you know, what their body is trying to tell them, um, about different people, for example, it wakes up an ability to notice when our body says no, when our body is green lighting something. Um, and for a lot of people who, who feel very disconnected from their bodies, like we aren't able to read our environment and people and what might be a good, you know, decision for us or good people for us if we feel very numb in our bodies. It strikes me that a lot of people access that wisdom after the fact, like after something bad happens or after we have a bad interaction, we notice, oh, I wasn't feeling too good about that in the first place. Or you notice the cues that your body was trying to give you. Um, mm -hmm. So is it about kind of shortening that relationship between your body signals and you paying attention and so it becomes more integrated? Yeah, I, I would call it like a resensitization. So um, for a lot of people who live with um, a lot of anxiety or stress, the, that stress and anxiety is so loud that it can crowd out other subtle sensations that our body is trying to, to share with us. Um, through our gut, for example, right? Like our, our gut tells us so much, but those sensations about sensing into um, our environment, what feels good, what feels safe, what feels supportive, can be so much quieter than those other sensations that are really loud. And so um, coming into a more intimate or um, intelligent relationship with our bodies can help us um, feel things and resensitize ourselves to things that are happening all the time. And so what role does pleasure play here? How can we pay more attention to pleasure in our daily lives and what does that open up? Um, pleasure, gosh, the, we, um, I find that through movement, especially what we spoke about earlier, exercise, um, but we don't associate pleasure with movement a whole lot. We've, we've kind of, over the last while, especially, have considered the more we sort of punish our bodies, the better we're going to feel in our bodies. And for a lot of the trauma survivors I work with, what happens is 
Um, the pleasure pathways in people's bodies are so um, underactive or never have been there if they've experienced childhood trauma. And so I had gradually um, will lead people into even neutral sensations in their bodies through like self-massage or movement or play because um, we laugh a lot at my studio when I'm with people. Um, but it basically we're trying to lay down new um, neural pathways, uh, pleasure pathways in people's bodies through movement that feels um, powerful, fun, um, helps people get back in contact with their sort of life force. Um, and, and that gradually opens up more possibility for pleasure when they're not with me. So are you indicating there that pleasure is something that's learned over time? Can you talk about that when you said if they experience childhood trauma, do we mm -hmm. lay the foundations for our pleasure capacity throughout life? Um, I think that's very, very true. I mean, if we live in a state of constant hypervigilance, um, meaning like we're always on guard or we shut down sensations so we don't constantly feel distress, then we're really not working in that zone, which is kind of called the window of tolerance where pleasure becomes possible because we need to feel safe to often like feel pleasure. So pleasure is something that we have to titrate sometimes because um, in our bodies because we've learned that being on guard is safer than letting down our guard and feeling something that's pleasurable, Oof. right? Huge, and I think so many, you know, so many women write to us and they just say, I don't feel any sexual pleasure, I don't know what I want. And men too, and you know, more and more men are revealing histories of sexual trauma. And I kind of believe we all experience sexual trauma in this culture to one degree or another. Mm -hmm. um, but this idea of, I'm with my partner, I love my partner, we're doing all the things, but I'm just not feeling it. Um, and thinking about we haven't allowed our body to acclimate the experience of pleasure, we don't know how to, and we use the word surrender, but I think that's a scary word. I think the idea of feeling comfortable enough to feel pleasure or feeling safe enough to feel pleasure is much more accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I from I don't want to geek out too much with the listeners, but um, what happens during, say, trauma? Um, for some people, can be what's called like feign death or play dead, which is another form of kind of submit or surrender, which is the same thing that happens during orgasm. Like we literally become sort of paralyzed for a moment, so um, it can be very difficult for people to allow that to happen because it literally means like you you can't your body stops moving for a moment which can um re make people relive that submit response if they've experienced any type of violence um so and then the other thing is is that like our brains become very sensitive to threat and what's wrong and that's sort of just a sur the survival part of our brain for everyone if you add any like um, complex or developmental trauma or violence that we get even resensitized to noticing what's a potential threat or what's wrong and our brains don't get wired to kind of let in the good mm. 
Can you talk about um, hyperreactivity versus hypo? This sure. idea of being kind of um, too responsive or not responsive enough to stimuli and how we work with both of those responses? Yeah. Um, hyperarousal is sort of when, um, you know, a loud noise and we startle really quickly or we um, have reflexes that are overreactive, you know, when we feel a little jittery. Um, and that can be accentuated um, in times of stress or when people carry a lot of the neurophysiological effects of trauma. So we stay in this like kind of tighter um, or even our, our connective tissue system called fascia is kind of more held and tense all the time and in a body armored state. Mm. Um, and so, so that is definitely like we're, our senses are so acute that we notice everything more and everything that could be potentially threatening or painful emotionally or physically, um, gets more of our attention in that state. So that's one of the responses to kind of ongoing threat or single incident trauma that can happen for people. Um, and then we have the other thing that can happen when it's safer to feel less or it's safer to submit or play dead um, in order to avoid more physical or emotional pain. And our body, our nervous systems um, just choose that automatically for us. It can also be a learned behavior if we have grown up in environments or if we live with a constant state of oppression um, due to different intersectionalities that um, will make us learn to play small, um, to hide our voice, to take up less space. And so we can gradually become less um, sensitized to what we're feeling in our body so that we we kind of stay out of danger by not taking up too much space. Wow. That's yeah. such an important invitation to think not only about kind of the single incidence trauma that might have happened to us or what our childhood home was like, but also how safe is your body in the world and in our social culture? Um, mm -hmm. it's such mm -hmm. an important point. Yeah. So, so the hopefulness here um, is that our bodies are so changeable and that we can yes. develop an active relationship. Um, and this for me, you know, when I stepped into doing massage work and breath work, that was when my trauma really started unraveling and healing. Um, mm. But it was the invitation that I could have a more active role with my body and I didn't have to just kind of accept where it was. So how do we think about the emotional work we need to do to step into a new paradigm, to invite more movement, to invite our bodies to kind of start rewiring. Um, there's a courage there. There's a courage to change. So how do you work mm -hmm. with that emotional piece of it's easier to stay stuck than change? Well, I think it's safer to stay stuck in some ways because it's what we've learned has gotten us to now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if it's easier, but it's safer and it's more predictable. Um, and we're less likely to get disappointed because if we try something and it doesn't work, it can kind of reinforce, um, the strength of our inner critic or that feeling of learned helplessness that happens for so many people for so many legitimate reasons. 
So, um, so when I think about how to do the emotional work, I mean, I think it's with a skilled, someone who knows on a very, very um, deep level how to work with more complex trauma, developmental trauma, but also to have someone who can guide you through feeling safe with another person in the room, um, if that's possible, so that so that you can piggyback off of their body, their nervous system, their courage, their their ability to see what's possible. Because we don't always see what can become possible um, because we're so used to kind of living in a bit of a safer containment and cage. So it helps to have a guide to take us there. And I mean, I ride horses as I go riding. Um, I'm very privileged to be able to do that. But I'll give an example, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I started riding, well, my body led me to riding again <laughs> in my heart. I met a horse when I was on a retreat a, a while back, probably four years ago. And I was just completely overcome with, like, what it felt like to be with a horse. I'd always loved horses, but I'd stopped as a teenager. And so when I got back from retreat, I found a coach. And when I first met her, she jumps. She does hunter-jumper and all that. And I'm like, I'm never going to jump. I just want you to know, don't even think about getting me to jump. It's stupid. Like, it's ridiculous. I'm in my mid-40s. I'm, <laughs> if I fall, like, something really bad is going to happen to me. Um, so she was like, okay. And so she just met me where I was at, and she gradually um, increased the complexity and the challenge of the things that I was doing until, like, probably she's so patient with me, two and a half, three years later after, um, you know, regular riding lessons, she set up a little jump for me. Mm. And I was really scared um, because what it required was not only trusting my coach, but trusting the horse because there's a moment when you jump that you have to you set them up right in rhythm and you use your body as a way to keep them grounded and feeling confident but when you go over a jump you have to release your hands forward and surrender Mm. and um I didn't think that was possible a few years back, but what I got to do is I got to um, piggyback off of my coaches, my trust in my coach. Um, my my, I know that she sees me and she really does care about me, and she set it up for me that I could experience a moment of victory and that I could notice that my fear was overshooting what was actually possible like my fear was greater than the actual danger mm-hmm. to me and so now I'll, all I want to do in every lesson is do a little jumping even though the fear is still there I have had enough evidence of the fact that I can do what I thought was completely out of reach now that's a very able-bodied perspective I get that mm-hmm. but there's many things that I do with my clients that are so small and titrated that I'm constantly giving them little tastes or evidence of the things that are now within reach that weren't before. And that creates a lot of courage and bravery for people that bleeds into their whole being, which can bleed into their capacity to feel safe, maybe being vulnerable with someone again. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so it's it can be very beautiful and I I know what it feels like as an individual to have someone guide me into that so that's sort of the heart of my work mm. I noticed a phrase you used there you said I used my body to feel grounded and confident I think mm. you said can you take us into that moment? So what are you aware of in your body? What skills are you bringing to that moment that create these qualities of groundedness and confidence? Well, for me, I mean, that shows up so different for different people. But I, um, in those moments before I jump, <laughs> I try to channel, like, do you know Sheena, Warrior Princess? Mm -hmm. From the, <laughs> I try to, like, embody a bit of this like warrior feeling of grounded and righteous and powerful um, in my body so that the horse can feel that. But so I, I believe that I'm okay because for example, like what happens to a lot of people who live in um, hyper arousal or hypo is that we go into this collapsed state in our body and we either body armor kind of enfold forward in our bodies to protect ourselves or we sort of slump into our bodies as well. So so with a, what I try to do is I try to find strength up my spine. Um, I try to kind of reach my head up to the sky and I try to notice if I'm breathing, holding my breath or not. And then I try, for me, this is what's available. It isn't for everyone. But um, I notice if I'm getting speedy in my body. Like there's this feeling underneath stress that is not just like breathing quickly or heart rate or tension in the muscles. There's this like speedy feeling that I, I can track where um, the cue I kind of use for myself is like slow my body down. And then... If that doesn't work and I'm still feeling kind of stressed and and I can't kind of regulate and ground myself, then when I'm when I'm writing, I'll sing a song. Mm. <laughs> and so it's so ridiculous, but I'll sing "Twinkle Twinkle, Little Star," and um, there's something that takes like the intensity off of what I'm doing, and it also keeps my body in rhythm, mm. so I don't go into that free state. So it's, it's quite funny. So you just named a bunch of strategies. Are these what you would call self-regulation? Yeah. So yeah. what does that term so many... mean? And like, how does it show up in the world? So in the workplace when stress comes up or we're getting in bed and I'm worried about my erection failing at these moments mm. of anxiety, how can mm. we self-intervene and self-regulate? Well, there's so many different possible tools and it depends because... I work with something called neural diversity. Like all of our nervous systems are wired and have been trained to respond to stress in different ways. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes it helps for people to go outside, meaning like open your eyes, scan the room, orient to your environment. You can count the number of things in your room. So you actually take your attention off the epicenter of the stress and worry as it's kind of showing up, say, inside your body. So one of the strategies can be to go into your senses and get kind of your attention off of what's stressful inside your body. Um, sights, you know, smell. I also use fine motor skills, so things that require you to pay attention kind of to a task-oriented behavior. Um, and, I mean, I have like 200 of these, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it's hard to pick, but... Mm -hmm. 
like ta- uh, task oriented behaviors that require like really paying attention to what you're doing with your fingers or your toes can be helpful. Um, you can also do some movement activities that um, help break up kind of a more rigid state inside your body. So um, lots of undulations in, in different directions, pelvic circles, you know, cat-cow on the ground, if that feels good to people. Um, and so it sort of depends what, like, works for each person. Um, but even, like, like even at home, like, if you're, if you're getting stressed before you go to bed and you're wondering how you're going to perform, like, you can even do, like, with your partner, you could do things like Jenga or make a puzzle or do something that involves you being present with what's happening in the moment so you don't get swept away with increasing levels of, like, stress about what might be coming or what might not happen. So, yeah. So one of the things I noticed a lot of these have in common is a deliberate shift of attention. Yes. And how do you connect mindfulness to embodiment. I love how you say the brain is part of the body and sometimes we think of mindfulness as this brainy activity, but I experience it and I think you talk about it as this very deep embodied experience. Um, mm-hmm. So how do we connect these dots between mindfulness and embodiment? Um, well, there's different ways to practice mindfulness. When I think of mindfulness as sort of present moment focus, mm-hmm without judgment. So, um, a lot of people equate meditation and mindfulness as the same thing. Um, so we can be mindfully present and really be here and now and whatever helps us do that without kind of time traveling to the future Mm. or the past Mm. is great, right? Because when we're not really with ourselves or with our bodies, including our brains, we will kind of, we'll time travel, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of the time, if we're time traveling to the future, we're, we're trying to anticipate worst case scenarios so that we have strategies on how to deal with them. It's funny our brains never go to best case scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we can train ourselves mm. over time to, through experiences, through victories, uh-huh. through evidence, and really mine those moments when they happen yeah. and really, really take them in and absorb them and sponge them into our bodies. So we start to see um, that there's other possibilities based on what our, we have experienced, right? Yeah, I wanna linger there for a second because I think a lot of people rush through experiences of pleasure and linger in experiences of struggle. So I think what you said is so important of letting your body fully absorb the pleasure, the wins, the victories, the moments of connection Um, and notice what it feels like. Yes, and you know, one of my teachers is, um, he's never met me, but I've met him. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Dr. Rick Hansen, who is um, a neuropsychologist and practicing Buddhist, um, his practice is called really letting in the good, Mm. and that we really need to install these moments of goodness of, of a pleasure, of joy, of learning in through our nervous systems, through our bodies and make it bigger. And then when we can somehow let it in through sensation or 
feeling, it might be imagery for some people if their bodies aren't really available that way, then our brains can start getting new messages through our nervous systems, um, our physiology that help them become more, um, experience more positive neuroplasticity, which means our, we can actually change our brains by taking in these really, really um, affirming, pleasurable um, moments and, and soaking in them for as long as possible. Yeah. yeah, and I love that you keep saying, like, what brings you to life? Because one of our great teachers, Audre Lorde, talks about the erotic as that which brings us to life. So the yes. force of eroticism is the vitality, that which animates us, which connects us to other people, which makes us creative. Um, so sometimes when I talk about sexuality, you know, it's stuff that happens in bed with the genitals, sure, but it's more than that. It's this eroticism of the life force that animates us. Um, yeah, and makes us weird and unique, yes, and um, exactly. it helps us find our voice, and that's so much the case through movement is, for me, is that it's not, sexual, sexual expression is so much more than sex, right, and, and when people's bodies feel more free um, during movement, to move into all planes of movement um, with more fluidity and confidence, I know that they're their their sexuality is coming back to life as well. Mm -hmm. And do you see like unique personality coming to life too? Those quirks start emerging. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know for me, I just keep on getting quirkier as I get older. Uh -huh. So <laughs> through my own experience, um, through my daughter, like she's fifteen, and I I'm noticing what kind of movement she feels drawn to, and it's like it would seem so random, but it's it is. It's like there's this intelligence in what we feel pulled to to engage in in terms of movement that is really trying to lead us to freedom. Mm. So you offer beautiful resources, and we will link up all of that in the show notes page. People can continue to go really deep with you. If you were to leave the audience with one nugget, one piece of advice about taking that next step, you don't know where all these thousands of folks are in their embodiment journeys, um, but what is one, is there one universal offering mm -hmm. um, that you can make? Understanding how intelligent our bodies are in, in trying to keep us safe um, and less, experience less harm during traumatic stress, um, really understanding that in whatever way you can, can help you see that trauma, PTS, PTSD is actually an injury. And just like uh, we can recover from, you know, a broken leg or arm, I look at trauma as an injury. And when we understand why our bodies responded the way they did for us, we can stop taking on this idea that we're broken. We can start to see that um, our bodies want to lead us to freedom and wholeness if we get the right kind of resources and support to take us there. And, and movement that helps us come in contact with our vitality and our strength and resilience can really grease the wheels for that to happen. And when we are who we are in the world, we can give our unique gifts and offerings. Um, mm -hmm. And that is so much what this all comes back to, is being a fuller human being so we can show up fully for life and give what we've got to give. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Jane Klopp, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Huge respect. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jane Klopp. And remember, there is a longer version of this conversation in the Survivor's Toolkit. The link to that toolkit is in the show notes page, or you can come over to pleasuremechanics.com slash survivors. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash survivors and sign up for this free online resource. If you or someone you love has been impacted by sexual trauma and let's face it, that is far too many of us. Let's get together and figure out how to move forward. There's beautiful resources already there. I'm adding new resources all the time. If there has been something that was transformational and powerful for you in your journey in recovering after sexual trauma, please share those resources with me. You can always email me at chris at pleasuremechanics.com. That's chris at pleasuremechanics.com. I would love to hear from you. And if you love this show and want to support the work we are doing, please come over to patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics and support the show with an ongoing monthly pledge. For as little as a dollar a month, you can make a huge difference in creating a sustainable income for us so we can continue on with this work fearlessly and boldly as we provide these resources for you and folks all around the world in creating a happier, healthier sex life for you and a happier, healthier sex culture for all of us. All right. I am Chris from pleasuremechanics.com. Thank you for being part of this conversation today. I hope there was a piece of this conversation that will benefit you. Let me know what it is. You can always be in touch with us over at pleasuremechanics.com. We will be back with you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or a review. Have a fabulous weekend, and we will see you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Cheers. Cheers.